Welcome, everybody, to the 23rd episode of Quarantine Market Podcast, where some academics get together in their self-isolating pajamas and talk about particular keywords. Today, as guest, we have Martin Parker, and we're going to talk about education. So, Alan, would you like to introduce Martin, please? Certainly, I would. Martin Parker is a professor of organization studies at the University of Bristol. He's author of several well-known books, including Against Management. More recently, he said he wrote the book, Shut Down the Business School, What's Wrong with Management Education, um, as well as various others. He publishes routinely in the top journals and would be very much regarded as one of the towering figures within critical management studies. So hello, Martin. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Towering figure. Oh, thank you, Alan. That's, uh, that's very kind. And you also write about towers as well, just to kind of reinforce the, your your towerness. That's right. There's there's clearly some kind of um, Freudian subtext in all that. Well, Martin, the concept that we've identified today is education. And um, now, interestingly, in Raymond Williams' keywords, he starts by noting that in Old English, education refers to rearing up or bringing up children, but over time, it starts to have this association with class and a distinction between the educated and the uneducated, and then this kind of populist language of the over-educated, the half-educated. It seems that education itself is very much a politically saturated term. Would you agree? Yeah, I think so. Doesn't the etymology have something to do with the idea of leading uh, leading people, or possibly animals or something? Educare, something like that? So I suppose the idea of of, of being led then implies that there's uh, someone who is being led and someone else who is doing the leading. And education, you know, particularly in terms of the way in which it's conceived within uh, the sort of the improving potential of the state, it's very much been about that idea of kind of bringing people along, uh, making sure that the uh, the middle classes have the necessary skills and taste um, and that the working classes have the capacity to labour on behalf of the of, of the uh, of the of the middle classes. So yes, I mean I think it's a, it's a highly politicised term. And of course, Althusser referred to schools as part of the repressive state apparatus of ideology. Um, is that a useful starting point to think of educational institutions as, as part of a repressive apparatus? Yeah, I think it probably is. It partly depends what you're trying to do with your theory, doesn't it? You know, one of the characteristics of, of structural theory is that it tells us rather a lot about the kind of structural mechanisms uh, which channel people into particular conduits that produce particular kinds of subjectivities, social classes, genders, ethnicities, whatever that comes to. Um, so structural theory tends to kind of give, paint a fairly gloomy, deterministic picture of the world. Now, you could say it's really helpful to start from that stuff, to kind of recognise the obstacles that face us if we want to change things. The problem with structural theory is that sometimes it just sort of stops with that pessimism. So, you know, it just tells us that um, we're all doomed and these are the structures that uh, that chain us um, uh, and there's not much we can do about it. And I, you know, I, I don't think that's a very good place for politics to begin. I think we need a little more uh, flexibility, more possibility for agency, creativity, imagination, and so on, in order to have a platform to engage in a progressive politics. And of course, there have been all sorts of attempts to reimagine education as something more progressive. The pedagogy of the oppressed is, 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 is a very noteworthy example. Could, could you talk mm. a little bit about some of those positive, utopian, progressive visions of education? Yeah, I mean, they're very often, I mean, you think about people like um, uh, Freire and Illich and others, that they're, they're very often beginning with a kind of a diagnosis of the problems of the institutions of education, but not necessarily of the idea of education itself. Yeah, as a kind of co-produced form of learning. Yeah, so you know, if we think about um, the way in which, say, Illich writes about the school system or something, this is Ivan Illich, the uh, a sort of the anarchist writer, and people like Foucault echo this in all sorts of ways as well. The, the idea that the the institutions are somehow you know carceral, they're they're they're, they're like prisons, they chain us in various ways. Um, so what we need to do is to break them. Yeah, whether, you know, it's kind of releasing, <laughs> making free-range children, you know, as part of the kind of the, uh, the sort of uh, education move, 
of the 50s and 60s and so on, um, or to produce different relations between teachers and students, whatever else, that kind of idea. So you have that kind of metaphor, I suppose, of of sort of breaking the the school system uh, or, the, or the education system and opening it up to something else. And the thing that it's normally opened up to is a more um, egalitarian relationship between the teacher and the student. This is articulated in slightly different ways by these writers, but essentially it's kind of flattening that relationship and emphasising two things. One is that the relationship between teacher and student is one in which the teacher learns as well as the student. So people are doing, you know, they're co-learning, they're learning together. And secondly, to kind of break that lockstep link between education and the needs of some sort of labour market. There's a kind of humanist thing in lots of this writing, the sort of idea that the education should be about um, expanding human potential without any particular reference to you being trained as a plumber or an academic or whatever anything else. You know, it's, it's about the sort of the expansion, of the idea of what it means to be human. And in that sense, it's very romantic, isn't it? You know, it goes back to, to Rousseau and others, that sort of idea that education could well be a, a force for producing better human beings. I'm also thinking of the Marxist concept of the general intellect. Is that... A similar thing, do you think? Or would you want to think about the general intellect a little bit differently? I don't know. I've always been a bit puzzled by that metaphor, the the, the idea of the general intellect. I mean, I think, you know, it, it's a really useful way of trying to prevent Marxism from being too structuralist, in a sense, because the general intellect then acts as a sort of, almost like a kind of collective agency to push against the ideological structures of capitalism or something along those lines. I've just found it very difficult myself, and I'm sure sure this is because I, I you know, I haven't read and thought enough, to understand what that concept really means, what it really refers to. And I guess that's partly why I prefer some of the more anarchist-influenced writers like Illich and Freire. Martin, you as many others were, especially a couple of decades ago, invested in discussing the ideas of postmodernity, or what we call the <laughs> postmodern okay. turn and uh, its sort of influences uh, regarding the business school and education in general. It kind of seems to me that for everybody who was interested in postmodernity, especially at the time, what has followed was a sort of continuous and uncanny negotiation and reckoning of its legacy. So in consumer research too, postmodernity was originally greeted with liberatory fanfare. And now it kind of seems that the cultural zeitgeist has fallen more into this disillusionment and kind of a no future that marks the affective feelings of today. So I guess I would like to ask regarding education and the role of business school and just your your feeling about it. What's what's your most fond and bleak memory of postmodernism in general? Yeah, I, that that's a really interesting question. To be honest, I, I don't really think very much about postmodernism anymore. I found it, I think, at the time. So this is sort of... 30 years ago now, um, a really useful battering ram for um, articulating generalised dissent, yeah, something along those lines. Looking back at it in retrospect, I, I, I don't anymore find it particularly helpful. I think it was almost like a way of taking positions, a bit like, you know, I was a, t- I was a teenage punk and that was just a way of, you know, talking about no future and anarchism and all the stuff like that. Uh, but it didn't really mean very much. Postmodernism to me is far too diffuse a term to be helpful. So, you know, on the one hand, it is articulated as a kind of a suspicion of a variety of institutional frameworks and the need to change them and so on to uh, to challenge these uh, these representations. Um, on the other hand, it's a kind of an epistemological critique, which I, in, in some senses I'm more interested in, the kind of philosophical ways in which we might think past the various versions of foundationalism and so on. I don't think those are two, I don't think they're the same things. You know, I don't think we need to criticise epistemology in order to think about political change. And indeed, collapsing the two sometimes means that just because people, you know, read Badieu and write an article about it in some journal, then it allows them to think that they're being so terribly radical. I don't think that's the case. You know, I think I think many many of those of us on the kind of critical fringes of business and management have been enabled to take various postures as if we were doing a certain kind of politics by engaging in some relatively safe forms of epistemological critique. And, you know, I'm not very impressed with that, really. 
So I guess much of what I've tried to move away from is is that sort of overriding concern with philosophy and theory and much more of an attempt to think about what sorts of institutional changes and connections and networks might be built to produce different forms of education. And I guess that's what I'm really trying to do a lot here at Bristol now is to kind of engage with all sorts of other communities and practices in order to um, in order to, to understand something about the limits of the university and the limits of the ways in which we think about education, and particularly business management education, of course. When we talk about the university, there's a lot of talk about the degradation of the university and its values. Do you think there was ever a golden age of the university? I, th- I think the golden age of the university is almost always uh, sort of 20 years before whenever you're talking, something along those lines. Um, for many of those people who educated me, you know, I did my PhD in the 90s, the golden age was the 60s and 70s. You know, that's when they were doing their PhDs, I guess. And so that idea of the university as being a place where a certain kind of dissent was incubated, in which sort of countercultural movements of theory and practice were being produced and so on, is a particular vision of the 1960s, 70s university. And one that, you know, I quite like. I mean, I think it's quite a nice story to tell about universities. It's clearly not been the function of universities for most of their history. They've changed function and meaning a great deal um, over the sort of 800 years of their existence. So... No, I don't think there was a golden age, but that's not a reason for giving up on the idea of the university, because the idea of the university as a a space for a particular kind of experimentation, I think is one that still can be very productive, can be very helpful. So I don't want to throw away the baby with the bathwater, really. I I still think that the idea of the university is a really useful one in terms of pushing against certain sorts of tendencies. But I think it's pretty dumb to imagine that we can kind of spool back to some uh, some sort of utopian version of a university where everything is lovely. I just had a discussion about the role of the business school mm-hmm. and uh, with, with a friend of mine. And it almost seems like we are at a sort of a paradoxical situation if we want to pursue this more humanistic idea of education or even a critical approach to knowledge and power within within education. So essentially, if you, uh, it's sort of like a little bit melancholically funny in the sense that if you're teaching students to be very critical about what they are supposed to do for the rest of their lives, assuming that your students will become managers, then are you basically preparing them for a life of unhappiness? But then again, if you're teaching them just to believe in business and believe in capitalism, then you're sort of doing an equally sinister function. So there's always, almost like this paradoxical impasse that a critical-minded teacher or scholar is left with when they work in a business school. What do you, how do you see the, yeah, that kind yeah, of role? I, I think that's right. And I think that lots of um, sort of critical management type people have been stuck in that kind of impasse for a long time. I actually think that's the least productive way to articulate what we do now, in part because it's based on the idea of critique as primarily uh, something that goes on in classrooms, you know, and and teaching people about, you know, Foucault and Marx and Derrida and whatever else, that kind of stuff. I'm now much more interested in thinking about ways in which, um, if you like, the critical impulse, a certain desire to change sets of, uh, of, of, of arrangements and representations, is, is much better played out by thinking about productive forms of social change and working with a whole range of organisations within and uh, within the university and outside it, in order to address the challenges of our time. And in that sense, in that sense, climate change is um, <laughs> such an useful way of rearticulating these kinds of conversations. Yeah, so. Um, this is almost kind of presenting climate change as the kind of deus ex machina that gets us out of the critical aporia or something like that. But essentially, it allows us to have a you know a common object. We we have to change the way in which the business system operates. And as soon as you admit that we're going to be talking about you know low carbon business systems, shorter supply chains, less travel, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, then a whole series of things have got to change. You know, it's it's no longer possible for us to be talking about 
a particular version of efficiency or optimization for a business organization. Um, and much more important to be talking about various forms of both state regulation, but also the encouragement of a diverse ecosystem uh, for different kinds of organizations and so on. So rather than just talking about the critical as a sort of negative impulse, you can talk about the critical as the possibility of producing something new. Yeah. Again, you know, going back to we were talking about etymology just now, weren't we? You know, crisis, that idea of a movement, uh, a moment of decision, deciding between this or that, you know. And, and essentially, we are now in a situation where we're deciding about the future of the human species. And that's pretty easy to talk to students about. You know, they, they, this is a bunch of, bunch of people who have been brought up with the idea that climate change is a problem. You know, they've watched plenty of videos of the, the last polar bear crying as it dies on the last iceberg and so on. They, they, they get this stuff. What they don't know is what to do about it. Uh, our job is to tell them or to, to help them understand what they might be able to do when confronted with this kind of problem. And to me, you know, that's about reinventing capitalism, which has, I think, been the point of the critical all along. It's just it got sidelined by a whole series of kind of epistemological uh, dead ends. One of the ways that the business school is often imagined is as there to reproduce capital. So how radical is it to imagine that you can transform capital in the business school? Yeah, I mean that's in part in, in the the shutdown of the business school book. I try and I try and escape that particular trap by talking about the production of schools for organising. So the idea being there twofold. One is to kind of use the notion of the university as a productive space where we can talk about a variety of different questions, but these being questions of organisation, how do people and things come together to do stuff, rather than simply questions of business or management or capitalism, whatever else. Uh, and, and in some sense, I'm then kind of discursively making an appeal to the idea of the university as a relatively neutral space. You know, if if the university wants to be seen as more than just a place where ideologies are reproduced, then it needs to be doing these kinds of things. But secondly, I, you know, I, I'm seeing a vast amount. So just to put this in some context, for the last two years now, I've um, been spending a huge amount of time wandering around the city, talking to the city of Bristol in the southwest of England, um, which has got an awful lot of interesting green businesses and, and networks and a city council that's very interested in low-carbon stuff and lots of co-ops and you know a whole variety of different kind of businesses. And because of this research institute thing that I've, I've sort of set up, then what I'm trying to do is, is to kind of knit together a whole series of academics from, from, from our School of Management, but from lots of other parts of the university, to be working with a wide variety of these businesses. Now, you know, on the one hand, we could say, okay, I'm doing no more than reproducing a particular version of capitalism, because I suppose what I'm talking about is the metaphor I'm often using is kind of tilting the economy, tilting the regional economy towards low carbon, high inclusion, high democracy work and so on. So you could say that that's no more than a kind of a reformist project. And there's an interesting balance here because because of the wide variety of audiences I'm talking to. Sometimes if I'm talking to, you know, some, you know, vaguely sort of anarchist co-op in Bristol or something like that, then they think that I am far too reformist. I'm not radical enough. If I'm talking to bigger organisations like Airbus or Bristol Airport or something like that, then, you know, they probably see me as a hippie radical of some description. So hitting the sweet spot between those two is going to be kind of tricky. But I don't see any reason to assume in advance that the kinds of changes that we might get by, let's say, having 10% of the businesses in Bristol cooperatively owned would simply be about a reform of capitalism. You know, I'm quite influenced by that sort of broadly Gibson Graham post-capitalist sort of literature, that the idea is to be looking for all those spaces in the economy, broadly conceived, which are already not very capitalist, and encouraging their growth, trying to work with them, to help them. And in that sense, the university is a fantastic resource because it's got rooms and sandwiches and a whole bunch of reasonably smart people and so on who are supposed to have the time and space to help with this kind of stuff. And further to that, the funding environment in the UK at the moment is very much oriented towards impact and engagement and all the rest of it. So, you know, why not swim with that tide, take that cash, but use the cash to work with um, businesses that we can imagine to be allies, rather than just continuing to dig ourselves a hole and line it with Foucault and Marx. 
No, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about how to phrase this because you're, you're sort of creating a, a little bit of a difference between these, some of these more directly critical ideas, but I still can't resist asking. Uh, so you've written, <laughs> uh, yes, e- even, even, if, even if this is something that you might have moved on from a little bit, I still, yeah. I'm still interested to know. You've written about becoming manager as a sort of uh, process of becoming werewolf. I've been recently, I've been really interested in the libidinal pleasures of domination, cruelty, and uh, repression and repressing yourself. So not just domination, not just domination of others, but also yeah. more strikingly when this kind, these kind of sinister forces are directed inwards at yourself, towards yourself. Mm. Do you think there is a lot of enjoyment, as in Jewish sons, in becoming werewolf, becoming the manager that, you know, sort of falls, mm-hmm. falls in line and gets their pleasures from these things that we might want to somehow critically uh, approach and try to imagine other ways of thinking and other ways of educating people. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? You know, it's kind of learning to love your jailer or something like that. My memory of the Becoming Manager paper, and again, this is a long time ago now, this is uh, probably... 15 years or something ago, was that it was an account um, of, of me becoming head of department at a previous university and, and, and then sort of observing myself or trying to observe myself in terms of what I was becoming, sort of, you know, Gregor Samson, metamorphosis, Samson metamorphosis sort of thing. The problem for me was just how quickly I slipped into that role and how quickly other people gave me that role as well. That's kind of what I, I remember from it. So sure, I mean, there's, there's clearly um, a pleasure in being part of that machine, isn't there, of, of, of exercising power, of being able to do things. Um, and I still have a fair amount of admiration for people who are effective in operating within various kinds of institutional contexts. The tricky bit for me, then, is whether we think that's to do with being a manager or not. Um, and I don't know what the answer to that is. Very often when I'm, I'm thinking about this kind of stuff in terms of the, say, a lot of the businesses and the people I'm talking to across the city at the moment, that the really effective managers, if you like, or I'd rather call them organisers, are people who have all sorts of personal capacities and skills for communication, for remembering other people's names, for making connections, for spreading enthusiasm and so on. So they're just, they're good at organising. They're good at gluing things together and making things happen. Now, I suppose we could say that that's something about being a manager, but I'd rather call it, you know, a generalised capacity for organising or something like that. And some of these people are excellent at managing in their organisations too. But the, the bit that really interests me is the way in which they connect things and produce things and make new things by gluing other stuff together and so on. So I, I, I guess I'm kind of quite deliberately... In answering this question, I'm noticing the way that I'm kind of trying to push away from the idea that the work that we do as academics is necessarily just about stuff we do within the university, within the classroom, within you know, the, within your office or something. And I, I'm trying to, in my practice now, I'm trying to spend more time outside the university than in it, I suppose. And that's influencing my thinking and the way I'm answering these kinds of questions. Yeah? It seems... We're, we're so overdetermined by our own labor process. Like, for example, I've, I've spoken to academics who seem to just have memorized entire fields of, of studies, like who the people are, what their publications are, how those <laughs> publications can be valued according to different uh, grids, you know, rankings, uh, where they stand relative to promotions. And they just have this kind of internal metrics the whole time that that's geared towards competition, towards career capital. Like it, it, it does seem there's a, an element of collective madness and obsession has has um, has entered the fold. Do, do you think that's that's right? I think I think we're far too internally focused. I mean, you know, the, the discussions about you know top ranked journals and all that kind of stuff um, are, are 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 a sort of symptom of that pathology, aren't they? That. Um, we imagine that other people are going to care about the fact that we published in, you know, some allegedly four-star CABS journal or something like that. I was quite alarmed when you said at the start, Alan, that I 
you know, was well published in top journals and so on. At the moment, I really couldn't give a shit. I really, really couldn't give a shit. That's that's the kind of of sort of well, the, the the construction of a particular form of identity, which in certain contexts could be really helpful, but is is meaningless to the vast majority of people um, that you know I'm talking to on a day to day basis. It's 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 absolutely irrelevant. And I, I guess I'm finding it more and more infuriating the way in which people, academics like us, and, and certainly like me, imagine that writing an article in organization or something is a form of politics. Yeah. And I suppose you could say it's a form of politics, but only in a kind of squeakily pointless way. It, it, I almost have a sense that politics has been sublimated in the UK to the ref. And then this tiny little subset of people who practice, you know, critical blah, 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 they, they are then enabled to claim that they're doing something called politics because they write articles that have got value in or something, yeah? And, and I, I just find it, I don't know, increasingly infuriating. And maybe it's something to do with my time of life as well. You know, I'm, I'm, 50, I'm 58 now, 58, and I've been an academic for 30-odd years and so on, and, 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 and I... Looking back on a lot of this stuff, it just seems to be a pointless series of turf wars that nobody really cares about. And I, I really don't want to spend the last decade of my career just reproducing that stuff and, you know, going back to sort of arguing about you say Foucault, I say Marx, you know, kind of, kind of stuff. I want, I want to do things. And that seems to me a much more useful thing uh, to be engaged in than worrying about whether or not I've got my by four by four for the next rep. One concept I'd like to ask you about is that of employability, which has mm. really become heavily emphasized in the contemporary university. And for those of us who teach in the business school, I, I just find it a very, very strange way of thinking about things. Because if you study a subject like marketing, for example, it's kind of obvious what career you're focused on. And if you're studying a subject like digital marketing, for example, it, it's there's a clear direct, explicit connection between the classroom and between practice. And yet we're still asked to mediate it through this concept of uh, employability. Uh, it makes a lot more sense for students studying, for example, English literature, where it's totally unclear what profession they're being prepared for. And it's possible to imagine them kind of being graduated and then dumped out of the university with no idea what they're supposed to go, where they're supposed to go. But in the business school, we don't really seem to have that issue. And yet, we seem to be organized and cohered around this concept of, of ideology, or sorry, of employability. What does employability mean? Like, what are we to make of it when our subjects are already so grounded in professional practice? Well, I think you've just told me what you think with that nice little slip between ideology and, uh, and employability. Well, <laughs> yeah, no, um, I think that the, the the question can be pulled apart in some different ways. So on the one hand, yeah, you know, the the there's a sort of overdetermination when business schools are talking about employability because they're predicated very often on the idea that they're about employability in the first place. And if you look at the, you know, the websites, the marketing and so on of most schools of business and management across the world, then you know they're not they're not telling you that uh, you'll have a great time reading about Foucault. Uh, they're telling you you'll, you'll earn X amount once you've done their degree and it's a good investment and all that kind of stuff. So yes, they're, they're, they're based on the notion of employability. So I guess what we could say is that the discourse of employability, which comes along with the expansion of the business school, has now moved to um, uh, to infect, perhaps, the rest of the university. That being said, there's another push in me, given, you know, Perhaps this is unsurprising, given all the, the stuff I've been talking about so far, about, well, employability for for what? You know, who, who, what are we trying to teach people to be employable for? And that's when I think connections to alternative businesses actually become really, really helpful. I'm not particularly interested in helping students become employable so they can go and work in some city accounting firm. That seems to be, um, <laughs> well... No, that's that, that's basically buttering a slope which is already fairly well greased and they're probably going to end up there anyway. What I am interested is in helping students to 
see what careers in low-carbon businesses might look like or to understand why if they want to set up a business, they might want to set it up as a co-op or an employee partnership or to think about um, new forms of enterprise and innovation which are moving towards, well, some, some people, this guy, guy in my place talking about ecopreneurship and so on. So I think there is a way in which we can take the discourse of employability and push it to a whole, towards a whole series of of productive outcomes. And that's stuff that's relevant to the business school, sure, but just as relevant to lots of people from, you know, English literature and sociology and all the rest of it. Again, going back to, you know, my sense of what the the average student, um, Western European student, knows about the world, then the idea that they would be capable of expressing their politics and ethics through their work, I think is a wonderful gift to give them. Yeah? Not, not for them to assume that they're just going to end up you know, working for some big company and feeling a bit guilty about it. Because when you push them, most of them do. Yeah? They, they understand that companies lie to them all the time, that marketing is basically about deceit, that accounting is about hiding things and making sure you don't pay tax, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they, they get this stuff. So why not present them with some alternatives, some ways in which they don't need to accept those kinds of compromises, that they can do something different? It seems to me there's an inherent comedy in, in, in listening to some of your responses, Martin. Uh, an inherent what? Well, did you say comedy? Comedy, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> All right. I, I'm thinking now of the concept of over-identification, whereby you can circumnavigate an ideological process precisely by doing what they want you to do because they never really wanted us to do these things anyway. So in this sense, um, by taking seriously employability and impact, it seems to me you're suggesting that we can actually reclaim something virtuous from the university. As though all we have to do is do what we've been asked to do and everything's going to be fine. And yet the the comedy is that this somehow seems very uh, subversive, uh, counterintuitive. What do you think... There's a funny, so when you're working within any institution, I suppose you could say that there's sort of three three easy positions to take. So, well, no, two easy ones and one difficult one. So one of them is to kick against the bricks continually, yeah, and to try to take the institution apart and do something different, in which case, you know, you're in a position of continual opposition to what that institution is doing. You're not going to get money. You're not going to get support. You're probably not going to get allies. And eventually you're going to meet a grisly death. Yeah? It's, you know, you're not, it's, it's not going to work for you. The, the other easy position is just to do exactly what you're told, yeah, and just you know parrot the same kind of language and ideas um, as every as as the institution wants you to do. In which case, you'll probably get promoted, but you're not going to do anything worthwhile. The the, the third one is the position, which is essentially, I suppose, the, the sort of subversive one, isn't it? That is is the idea that you can take the resources that the institution offers and to try to channel them to particular places to to different ends. Um, Stefano Hani, my ex-colleague at Leicester, um, wrote a nice piece with, I think it was with Fred Moten, about the undercommons um, and this sort of idea that institutions or places, universities were places to steal from. Yeah, so, so you steal their rooms and their books and their ideas and their grants and all the rest of it, and then you do politics with it. Yeah, you, do, you do useful stuff. But in a sense, the metaphor he's very often using is this idea you're kind of scurrying around in the basement of the place, right? You're, you're trying to, to, to twist its um, very ample resources and, well, financial and cultural capital and steal bits of it and give them to people you think are, are allies, are deserving in various ways. And I kind of like that. You know, I sort of like that idea of a certain sort of working within the, working within the structure and making it helpful for people. So, in in terms of a very you know very current example, so one of the things I'm trying to do at the moment is to work with a whole bunch of little organisations, and they can they can hold hands with the university because it's very helpful to have you know the Bristol University crest on some of their grant bids and stuff like that. But essentially, what we're doing is just lending them a bit of cultural capital. Yeah, I'm. these are their questions these are small organizations that want to get grants to do a variety of things that i think are worthwhile and i can i can help i can help the university hold hands with them for a bit yeah um they don't want anything else from the university particularly they just want the money right (laughs) because they want to do whatever it is they want to do 
But I think that's a useful, useful way of stealing some of the university's cultural capital. Yeah, and turning it towards stuff that I think is good. Whether that's comedy or not, I don't know. Why it's comedy is that that's exactly what the university is asking us to do, and yet it feels like stealing, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, kind of. I mean, we had, I, I mean, continually in rooms at the moment where you know, the talk about collaboration and partnership and all sorts of things is, is very contemporary at, at the university. But most of the time when they're talking about collaboration and partnership, they're, they're usually talking about big, big corporations because it's about, you know, producing a particular, if you like, you know, sort of academic capitalism or something like that, signing partnership deals, deals with big IT companies or insurance companies or whatever in order that we can sort of be doing research for them and so on. And, you know, that, that's one model of what the university can do. I'm much more interested in thinking about the partners that don't get talked to, yeah, in, in, in on this kind of trying, to, trying to take that language but push it further towards... Uh, you know, the left, if you like, the left behind, not only in terms of cults and, and all that kind of stuff, but also in terms of particular sorts of communities within, say, the city of Bristol, which, which, which simply don't get included, don't get thought about in these kinds of contexts. Basically, the, the way in which the university, um, in which many universities, I think, understand themselves is primarily in terms of those partnerships, those linkages, those um, ways of describing their environment which are most profitable, most helpful. So, you know, talking to some, I don't know, working class school in South Bristol or some, um, some organisation that's interested in land ownership in order to be growing community vegetables or something, it, it kind of falls off the radar because it's not seen to be very um, profitable, essentially. Um, so I'm trying to push ideas about partnership in those kind of directions. So I guess you're right. I am, I am sort of doing what the university wants me to do kind of doubling down on it in a, in a way you know if you're going to use words like partnership then you should be talking to all your partners not just British Telecom. Why is it that you think there's a mental health epidemic in universities? <laughs> oh yeah um, yes my immediate response to that is is that I, th I think there's two two things going on one is that um, for a whole variety of reasons um, many people are feeling much more able to talk about mental health problems in ways that they couldn't before. And so language is changing slightly. I've noticed this with my kids, for example, that you know, rather than just saying, I feel a bit sad, uh, they would say, I'm having problems with my mental health, for example. Okay, so, the, so there's, and, and, and this isn't a comment on, on the feelings themselves, it's just the way that those feelings get articulated. I suppose this is a broadly Foucauldian point. Foucault seems to have been haunting this interview. But the other thing, I, I, I think that academics are, are at the moment subject to so many and often rather contradictory pressures. Um, so the idea of, say, being a great teacher and being a great researcher, for example, are not necessarily the same things. They push in different sorts of directions. And if you add to that the kind of, you know, intensification of various sorts of administrative labour and so on, then you don't have a very clear um, task specified for the research academic in universities like the ones that we're part of. It's almost as if you're getting pulled in lots of different directions. And so I'm not surprised in that sense that many academics feel that they're failing on all fronts, you know, that they can, never, they can never do enough to be the perfect academic. That's a real problem in terms of the way in which I think research and teaching expectations are now magnified through various kinds of surveillance mechanisms. I've written about this in other contexts, but the idea that the university is a kind of judgment machine, um, and it's a judgment machine which is now sort of firing on all cylinders, really. So, you know, judging your research in terms of where you're publishing and how often you're publishing and all that kind of stuff, judging your teaching in terms of whether you hit certain scores on student metrics and all the rest of it, or even, you know, whether you're responding to students uh, fast enough on, on email or whatever else. Um, and also the judgments of, of, of kind of probation and promotion and all the rest of it that ref are reflected in various administration and citizenship type duties and all the rest of it. So you can fail so, so easily at so many of these things. So it's not surprising then that lots of people start to feel that they are, you know, general purpose failures. And if you add to that... I think a curious thing about people who become academic is that, you know, very often they are, they're presumed, you know, kids who probably did reasonably well at school um, and want other people to think that they're quite clever and competent. 
<laughs> we're victims for the way that other people see us, yeah? And it seems that constructs a particular sort of, almost a particular subjectivity or something like that, which is, which is very vulnerable, which, look, which is brittle, you know, which looks on the outside like it's all swagger, swaggering and big and clever. Inside is just a, a big blubbering mush, <laughs> blubbering mush of terrors about, you know, what if you're found out? It's all that kind of stuff. It does seem that the measurements are moving towards measuring affect. How did the students feel uh, when you're teaching them? You know, what does the student experience as opposed to what is the quality of the education? And it's very precarious to be responsible for how somebody else feels, especially if it's a big group. Yeah, absolutely it is. And, you know, that's that's really going to be exacerbated over the next year or two, isn't it, as we we move towards our temporary or permanent period of educating online, um, in which many of the kind of the ordinary signals that we might use in classrooms for working out whether we're doing okay and whether students understand are going to be only available to us in some very thin ways. So I I think um, people's anxieties about teaching in particular are going to be magnified over the next uh, year or so. It seems we're at a real junctural point in as much as lots of opinion editor pieces um, are appearing in newspapers speculating that the university is going to transform into something permanently different. Do you think that that will happen? If so, any uh, forecasts of what the future might look like? (laughs) Yeah, well, as I suggested, uh, I'm actually from the future, so I've seen what it's like. I think that some of this stuff is overstated. Um, much of the core business of, say, big research universities in uh, the global north will continue in relatively similar sorts of ways. And here I'm thinking essentially about science, technology, medicine kind of stuff, and also the kind of the core core parts of undergraduate education and so on. That being said, I think that the the possibility for connecting universities to a whole variety of other interest groups, stakeholders, partners, collaborations, whatever, are enormous right now. And and, and what might be um, a good outcome uh, from, from COVID is this idea of kind of producing the porous university. I think universities, and this goes back right to the start of the conversation in terms of, you know, what do academics do when they're writing journal articles for each other? universities have become far too internally focused, you know, in, in terms of certain sorts of metrics and measurements and ways of ways of using language almost, you know, that, 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 that the metaphor I very often use is, is uh, the glass bead game, the novel by, by Herman Hess, where there's a, a kind of a bunch of adepts who, um, who play this mysterious game that nobody else really understands uh, or understands the rules of or anything like that. You make some move in the glass bead game and other people clap, but nobody really, nobody outside the walls of the institution knows what's going on. And I think that's the problem we've got ourselves into now. You know, that that you know, if you if you if you, one of you were to tell tell me that you just got published in, I don't know, some you know, four star, the journal of consumer culture or something, is that four star? I don't know. Um it's it doesn't even appear on any rankings. Oh, doesn't it? All right, okay. Well, I, I insert insert into that sentence a four star marketing journal of some description then presumably many of the people uh, listening to this podcast would kind of nod and go, oh, yeah, it's very good, very good kind of stuff. And it means nothing to anybody else in the world. You know, you might as well have just said, um, I don't know, uh, some, something about a flower or um, uh, about a particular shape of cloud or whatever. It's kind of, you know, it's, it's just a meaningful piece, of, a meaningless piece of language. So if we can stop universities being so internally focused, then I think we might have done something really useful. And particularly in terms of this sort of metaphor of porousness, one of the things that I, I, I found really interesting about uh, moving to a new institution and a new city, I've lived in uh, my previous home for, for 30 years, so moved to Bristol about two years ago now, um, is sort of understanding the way that the geography of the city and the geography of the institution produces certain sorts of isolations um, um, insulations, if you like. So the area around the, around the university is very cosmopolitan, very diverse, very educated. You know, everybody's got PhD, blah blah blah, all that kind of stuff. But then you travel a couple of miles across Bristol, and there's parts of the uh, parts of the city that uh, look like where I've been living for the last thirty years in Stoke-on-Trent, and have no connection with the university. The university has nothing to do with them. Yeah? Not only aren't they educated there, they wouldn't. They wouldn't be connected to it in any way. Its research wouldn't touch them. It just doesn't matter. It might as well be another world. And I really would like that idea that 
universities that share the same name as the cities they're in are connected to those cities in some more meaningful way, you know, rather than just pushing up rents for drunken students. Um, or in the case of, of, of Bristol, you know, virtually every area of, um, uh, of undeveloped land is now being uh, uh, is now being developed as student housing and so on, which which many people in Bristol feel is a, a real problem. So you know, for many of many of them, ordinary citizens, the university is is not is not a marvelous not a marvelous institution that's come to save them. It's either an irrelevance or a pain in the arse, depending on how close you live to it. I'm just thinking of the Labour politician, uh, John Ashworth, who gave a speech criticising the management of the University of Leicester. He wants them to think of themselves as what they are, the University of Leicester, rather than just a university in Leicester. Yes, that's right. I think that's a really nice way of expressing it, actually. The, uh, you know, I, I just I, I sometimes use the gag, you know, that what a strange coincidence that the University of Bristol has the same name as the city it's in. I'd have one final question. Is this, the, is this going to be the really hard one? Well, well, maybe, maybe. Let's see what you think about it. It's okay. a little disconnected from what we've been talking about right now, but it does connect back to the beginning where we already invoked Freud a little bit. What, what I'm interested in is that in your work, you've been always, you always seem to have had a calling to theoretically go to places that are typically a little bit less visited in organization theory. Paraphrasing Zizek when he talks, when he was talking about the very big things in Lacan, uh, could I ask from Tower? cranes to skyscrapers to the Apollo program, what has always turned your interest to the very big things in organizing? (laughs) Yeah, interesting. I've been thinking about this a bit lately because my latest project on weeds, and I'm reading a lot about weeds and about gardens and about things that grow next to motorways. And and it's supposed to be a piece about organization and disorganization and, and, and a sort of you know, a work of organization theory of some kind, but using the metaphor of weeds. So it's certainly about places less visited. And that and that's kind of deliberate. It's meant, meant to be sort of provocative, I suppose, in the sense that, you know, uh, why is he, what's, what's he writing about now? Oh, weeds, you know, and he'll try and, try, and, try and find some bizarre way of connecting that to organization studies. So I like, I like that sort of idea. But many of the things that I've been writing about are also just things that kind of, that, that fascinated me. It wasn't, wasn't so much that they were just obscure and less visited. There was just things I loved. There was was like the Apollo program. You know, that's, I mean, that's that was that's part of my childhood, and I wanted to try and understand it and read about it and think about it. Skyscrapers, what beautiful, ugly things they are. You know, that that's sort of how how can I admire something that that is so magnificent, but at the same time represents so many things I think that are politically problematic. It's just, I just ended up writing about things that I liked when I was six. It's just, it's just me returning to a series of fascinations. That being said, I can tell another story about it, which is essentially a story about the idea of expanding theories of organising. Yeah, so you know, organisation studies, it seems to me, has been far too focused on the corporation, the business organisation, as if that were the sum total of organisations that existed in the world. You know, and and that's clearly not the case. So, so much of the the sort of additive process of writing about, you know, the circus and the zoo and the skyscraper and angels and all the rest of it is to kind of say organising um, needs to be understood as more than just about a particular subset of organisations. And I guess one day I'll stitch all these things together into that big argument, into that sort of idea that if we want to, to, to sort of have a philosophy or theory of organising, then we need to look for organising in all sorts of interesting and odd places and not just assume that it happens in certain kind of buildings with the uh, uh, with the logo above the door. With that in mind, Martin, I, I went recently uh, to a critical accounting conference, uh, even though this isn't my subject at all. A good chunk of the papers began. It seemed to me totally unclear what they had to do with the field of accountancy. The first three or four slides that they would show us in the PowerPoint presentations were these extraordinary feats of rhetorical gymnastics where they would you know, demonstrate this incredible elasticity of the, the field of accountancy itself and just make the case why this was indeed relevant to accountancy. And of course, within critical marketing or consumer research, we do things like this all the time. Uh, and, and organizational studies do it too. Might there be something to be said that why don't we just drop the pretense of trying to ground these uh, disparate research interests within limited subject areas and just go for it? 
Yeah, I mean, you certainly could say that. I mean, I think, you know, there's no particular reason why not to write about, you know, cowboys or something. That's 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 great. I guess the, 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 the bit that interests me most is at the in terms of that stream of work anyway, and I suppose it's reflected in the kind of the alternative organisation stuff too, is trying to understand what organising is. And so there is a kind of quite, a, for me at least, a kind of fairly profound theoretical question in that. One of the odd things I've, I've, I think I'm right about this is that even though lots of organisation theorists and, and marketeers and various others, others have used a lot of philosophy in their work over the last 30 years or so, there are very few philosophers who are directly interested in the concept of organization. Yeah. And that's kind of interesting in the sense that it, you know, that you can find a philosophy of wine or a philosophy of temperature or whatever. You know, there's philosophers who've written about all sorts of stuff. But but very few, I mean, various people have made comments on it in, in various parts, but very few who've actually seriously taken the concept of organization and tried to understand what it means in philosophical terms. I guess that's why I'm so interested in Bob Cooper's work, because it seems to me that he's one of the few people um, within sort of management slash social theory philosophy who's tried to do that kind of work using, obviously, mostly French post-structuralism and so on. But, but I think there's a bigger job to be done there. And I, I, I think, and I might be dignifying my fascinations with far too much... Um, <laughs> far too much academic pretension here, that part of what I'm doing when I'm exploring all these different weird cultural artifacts is, is trying to think about organising and organisation. Because I, I had this idea that one of my sort of career-ending books I'd like to write would be a philosophy of organisation. Well, Martin, I'd like to say you've infused me with plenty of positive energy and a really optimistic uh, discussion of what the university and business school can be. So thank you very much. Well, I mean, one of the things that I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm kind of conscious of is that it's just that almost like the, the standard mode of moaning amongst academics now is to say, you know, what it's like. I did a, a Skype with a bunch of old academic friends and, and, and this was about, about seven people and we were drinking beer one night. And, and you know, the, 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 the first five minutes was how shit this place is or that place is or what they're doing or have you heard about this kind of stuff. And I just find it tedious now. You know, I, I, I feel like we've been moaning about our institutions for far too long and, and we should... Just crack on and do something about it then. And, and that's not about, <laughs> it's not about writing another fucking article about what's wrong with the ref. Am I allowed to swear in these podcasts? Sorry. You know, that kind fuck of... Yes. <laughs> fuck yes. Fuck yes. That performative contradiction. But about doing something then, you know, engage in a particular form of politics in terms of making connections and ideas that produce the world differently, whether inside or outside your institution. So absolute, relentless, furious optimism. That's all we have. Well, thanks very much, Martina. It was very nice meeting you, if only virtually. And, uh, a pleasure. It's nice to meet a... you too. Yes, thank you. Yeah.